Matthew chapter 14, we're going to look at 12 verses together this morning, verses 22 through 33. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. The gospel writer, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Today is the First Sunday of Advent. Now, Advent simply means to come or, or, or coming. And so, during the Advent season, during the Christmas season, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ into the world at Christmas. We celebrate uh, Jesus taking on flesh and coming into the world during the Christmas season. But we also with hopeful anticipation, look forward. Not only do we look backward 2,000 years to the coming of Christ the first time, but we look forward to the coming of Christ the second. We think not only Jesus came into the world to do a work in the world, which he did, but we also think about the work that he has promised us that he will do in the future as well. And so we usually take the four Sundays in Advent and consider something Christmas-ish. And so we want to do that again this year. We want to think about how God, how Jesus came into the world and the impact that he had on our day-to-day lives. But for the next four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to slow down and just four selections from the gospel. So just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will walk through each of those in, in succession, culminating on The last Sunday in Advent is actually Christmas Eve, so Sunday morning and Christmas Eve will end our time together looking at a selection from John's Gospel. But over the next four weeks, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these passages that we've chosen will likely be familiar to you. Maybe not, though. Maybe there's something that's new to you here, uh, but we have gone with passages that typically are passages that we think about regularly uh, for us as Christians. The goal here, the goal in doing this and taking these four selections from the Gospels is to spend some time getting to know the coming king. The king that, yes, came into the world as a a small baby uh, 2,000-ish years ago, but the king who is coming 
from the sky and will rule and reign among us uh, in the future. Jesus Christ invites us through his word to know him better. This is one of the very unique things about Christianity, is that God is continually, through his word, inviting us to know him. And Jesus Christ invites us to know him as the word of God, through God's word. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 says, But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What is the one who knows God? What do we boast in? The fact that we, in fact, do know God. That he understands and he knows me. God delights in, in this passage, he says in Jeremiah, God delights in love and justice and righteousness. And Jesus Christ has made God known to us by coming into the world and taking on flesh, exhibiting these characteristics fully. Love and justice and righteousness. John, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, made God, the only God that no one has seen, known. He is at the Father's side. He has made God known to us. And so the selection this morning from Matthew's gospel helps us to know Jesus better. That is our goal, to know the coming King better to see how he has revealed himself specifically to us and inspiring what's recorded here in Matthew and throughout the gospel accounts. If you you are familiar with your Bible, and even if you aren't, you're probably familiar with the passage or at least some of the details of the passage that I just read. Uh, even Even in our culture and the culture's eye of who Jesus is, oftentimes he is portrayed as one who is walking on water. And sometimes the cultural satirical approach looks a little silly. But the reality is that Jesus, in fact, did walk on the water and he did so for a very specific purpose. But all within this passage, the heart of what happens here isn't that Jesus walked on the water only. But there are many things that we see described in this account that can be a great help to us in understanding a portrait of Jesus. And so there are several ideas this morning from these 12 verses that we want to consider together and that will guide our time together in this passage. The first thing is this. I'm going to, there's five. The first is this, Jesus in Moses. The second thing is Jesus in prayer. The third is Jesus in creation. Fourth, Jesus in Peter. And fifth, Jesus in the heart of faith. Now, these things in in their own ways are connected, but we're going to talk about them each individually as the gospel writer lays them out for us. So the first I said is Jesus and Moses. Now, why would I say Jesus and Moses from this passage? There's no mention, no direct mention of Moses. And Moses is the, the man who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is called the Law or the Pentateuch. And so these five books have a special place in the life of Israel, God's people. 
in the Old Testament. They have a special place because it gives us a clear picture of what God has said to his people, how he created everything, and how his people should live according to his character. Moses led the exodus out of Egypt. God appointed him as his prophet and as his servant to lead his people out of bondage to slavery and into the promised land. Now, because of Moses' sin, Moses didn't see the promised land. Uh, In fact, he was explicitly told by God that he could not enter the promised land. Another one uh, takes the people of Israel into the promised land. That one is Joshua. But Moses becomes one of the central figures for in Israel's history. And there is, like I said, no explicit reference to Moses here in in, uh, this passage in particular. But Matthew's gospel as a whole is full of allusions or references to Moses. And one of the key references comes earlier in the book. It comes in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon that Jesus preaches. Jesus preaches this sermon from a mountain. Why? It's called the Sermon on the Mount. But by doing so and by showing us Jesus going up the mountain to preach this sermon to the people who are below listening, Matthew is alluding to or referencing the fact that Moses went up the mountain and declared the word of God to the people of Israel as God's representative. Moses goes up the mountain, declares the word of God to the people of Israel as God's representative. And what Matthew is saying is that in the same way, Jesus, the word of God who took on on flesh, went up the mountain and gave the word of God to the people, not as a representative of God, but as God himself. Now, instead of having this intermediary, this individual who goes up, speaks to God, and then relays God's word, now God himself stands on the mountain and speaks directly to the people. This passage, in in a similar way, is the same kind of concept. In chapter 14, another reference to Moses. In verse 23, Jesus again goes up a mountain, like like, uh, Moses does so many times. He goes up the mountain, and we're told in verse 23, he goes up the mountain himself to pray. Now, Moses would continually go up the mountain to meet with God. And in verse 25, we are told that Jesus comes down the mountain and finds the disciples in a predicament And the same happens with Moses. Moses continually comes down from the mountain, finds the people of Israel engaged in all sorts of shenanigans, and then has to to, uh, make things right between the people and God. Verse 30 in our passage this morning, if you look at verse 30, uh, Jesus delivers his disciples from the waters that threaten them. Moses parted the Red Sea during the Exodus, and the people of Israel pass through. Now, why does this matter? Why is this important? Because Moses is on the Israelite Mount Rushmore. Like if you pick the the four guys who are the biggest deal in the Old Testament, Moses is up there. he's, He's on the Mount Rushmore. He's a really big deal. And Matthew knows this. And so Matthew wants to highlight 
that Jesus is a new kind of Moses, but not only a new kind of Moses, a better Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. And so for the the Jewish readers of this gospel, they'd be thinking Moses is the best of the best. And Matthew is saying Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is a greater Moses. Because even though Moses was great, his time came to an end. In Moses' disobedience, he could not enter the promised land. He could not lead God's people into the promised land. But this is not the case for Jesus. Jesus, in perfect obedience, keeps the whole law. Fulfilling it entirely, redeeming us from the curse of the law, and faithfully leading all who are joined to him by faith into an eternal promised land. All who came before Jesus, including Moses, are a lesser picture. Jesus is better than the best. And so with that in mind, then we look at what Jesus actually does in this passage. What are the things that he does here in this passage? And the first that we should note in our second point this morning is Jesus in prayer. Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. Again, we see that in verse 23. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He dismisses the crowds. Now, why are there crowds there? We have to take into account what comes before this passage, because we're not walking through Matthew's gospel. We have to look back at the previous chapters and say, well, why are there crowds around Jesus? Why would Jesus decide to go up the mountain and pray? Well, right before this passage, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Another relatively common passage, but Jesus takes, performs this incredible miracle, um, taking five loaves, two fish, multiplying them for 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And everyone ate of that meal and was satisfied. Five loaves of bread, two fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish don't go very far in my home, and they probably don't go very far in yours, let alone for 5,000 people. Jesus performs this incredible miracle, uh, and, and then all the people who were present heard him teach and were, in fact, satisfied. Go immediately before that, and you find out that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is brutally murdered by, by Herod, by King Herod. And then you go right before that, and you find that Jesus goes home to his hometown of Nazareth, and the people there reject him. They want nothing to do with him. And then if you go before that, Jesus preaches a really long, par- or a really long sermon where he gives a bunch of parables, most of the parables that exist in, in this gospel. Now this, if you look at these things together, uh, seem like a pretty exhausting stretch of ministry for Jesus. There's a lot going on here. Preaching a sermon, then getting rejected in your hometown. There's some emotional, um, emotional capital that is in, invested in your hometown, and he gets rejected. And then his cousin is murdered, and then he performs one of his most, uh, most well-known miracles, and now he's here. Now he tells his disciples to get up in, in the boat. And head, and then he himself heads up the mountain to pray. 
So if we look at it from that perspective, it shouldn't be very difficult for us to understand why he would need a moment. Why he would need a moment to go up the mountain to pray. Jesus is a man. He is fully man. He experiences the same things that we experience. At the end of a difficult stretch of work, he is tired. So Matthew, the gospel writer, is putting Jesus' humanity on display. You've had a hard week, maybe this even this last week in your life. You've had a hard week and thought to yourself, man, I really just need to refresh. And doubtful your week was maybe this difficult, um, especially considering the, the miracle portion and the murdering of the cousin portion. But you're a human, and Jesus is a human. He is a man. And when things are tough, you need to refresh, and so did Jesus. And so Jesus' prayer here is being refreshed in fellowship with his Father. He goes up the mountain to have a time of intimacy with his Father in order that his spirit might be refreshed for what comes next. We'll come back to that in the conclusion. But let's move on to the next point. The next one is Jesus and creation. Jesus and creation. So when Jesus comes down from the mountain after this time of fellowship with his Father in prayer, he comes down from the mountain and the disciples are a long way from the shore in the boat. Now this is the part of the story that we're probably most familiar with. The wind has picked up, the boat is being tossed all over the place, and Jesus walks out on the water to meet the disciples, to get to them. Now we understand the power that the weather has. We've constructed ways in our world to shelter ourselves against against the weather, and actually pretty successfully and pretty comfortably compared to most of human history. Blizzards and high winds and tornadoes can all happen here in North Dakota. But our insulation is strong, short structures, not tall ones, and then we have put basements in them to keep, keep us safe. And sometimes we take those things for granted. But if you found yourself outside, uh, underdressed, and a distance from shelter in, in say, negative 40-degree wind chills, creation would overpower you pretty quickly. You would give in. Your body wouldn't be able to hold up. Jesus is Lord of creation. Psalm 29.10 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Every weather act that exists, God is over. It is all subject to him. Creation is completely and utterly subject to to Jesus. The question that we need to ask, though, is why? Why is creation subject to Jesus? Creation here is subject to Jesus, the water that any one of us would sink on if we walked out on it. Creation is subject to Jesus because he made it. The H2O that exists, Jesus made it. He holds it together, and it obeys his commands. 
And so, Jesus is able to, to do with it as he pleases. Ch- John chapter 1, verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. When you're the author, you get to pick how the story goes. When you're the author, you get to pick how the story goes. Jesus is the author of this whole story. And he has written the story, and he is the main character. And Jesus shows us his authority over creation by walking out onto the water, by calming the winds down. All of creation is completely subject to Jesus. That brings us to a fourth point this morning. Jesus and Peter. Now we see a contrast in characters. Now we see this contrast in the part of the passage that, that we, we remember is Peter's response to Jesus. Is that Peter, at least for a moment, walked on the water as well. When the disciples first see Jesus in verse 26, they were terrified and said, <coughs> excuse me, it is a ghost. That was their initial response. It is a ghost. But Jesus says to them, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus in that moment, by saying that, by saying, take heart, it is I, he is speaking comfort to his disciples. Because if we saw something that we considered to be a ghost, we'd freak out as well. But Jesus assures them that he's no ghost. He says, it is I. Note Peter's response in verse 28, though. Look at the text. Lord, if it is you. He says, if it is you. And then he puts Jesus to the test. He says, command me to come to you on the water. There is such a division in Peter here. He is so divided in the way that he approaches Jesus in this moment. On the one hand, what we just talked about is Jesus is the Lord of creation. He believes that. Because if it is Jesus, then then Jesus should be able to make it so that he can walk out on the water as well. He believes that Jesus, that all of creation is subject to Jesus. But on the other hand, the simple words that Jesus speaks to him, the simple thing that Jesus says when he says, it is I, isn't good enough. It's not good enough. And so when Peter gets out onto the water, he takes a few steps, and then the text says that he begins to sink. And at that moment, Peter cries out. He says, Lord, save me. And we're told that Jesus, in verse 31, immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's important for us to see this passage properly. Peter sinks not because of his lack of faith or his ability to walk on water. Hear this clearly. 
Peter sinks not because of his lack of faith in his ability to walk on water. It's not that he just doesn't believe that he can walk on water. That's not the reason why he can't walk on water. Rather, Peter sinks because he did not believe the word that Jesus spoke to him. Jesus said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. But what does Peter do? When he sees the wind, he is immediately afraid. Jesus spoke to him, commanded him even, to not be afraid. If Peter had obeyed Jesus' command to come and to not be afraid, that was the faith that he needed in his word. There was room for fear in the heart of Peter because he did not fully trust Jesus' word. And he believed at least in a little bit that his ability to come to Jesus was contingent on him. Excuse me. All this talk of water. Can I have some water, please? Just that little cup right there. That small amount of water that belongs to one of our children. Thank you. That's all I needed. Okay. Thank you. Elizabeth Elliot says, and I think this captures this idea very well, She said, fear arises when we imagine that everything depends on us. In Peter's case, even just a little bit. He imagined a little bit of this walking on the water business and coming to Jesus depended on him. It did not. He needed to trust Jesus fully as the one who would both call him and the one who would sustain him in his calling. But notice how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus does not let Peter sink. He graciously does what Peter requests. Peter says, Lord, save me. Now, because Peter didn't entirely believe that Jesus, it was Jesus at the beginning of the interaction, would be safe to assume the call, Lord, save me, was also mixed with doubt. You remember sometimes we sing the song in congregational worship, He will hold me fast. And the song begins, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. Jesus' grip on Peter wasn't withheld, though, because of Peter's doubt. His faith was mixed with doubt. On the one hand, believing that Jesus was Lord of all creation. On the other hand, not taking him at his simple word, it is I. It was mixed with doubt. He stepped out under the water feared, even though Jesus told him not to. And in that moment, Jesus didn't say, see you later, you get what you deserve. He reached out his hand, heard the cry, the weak faith that existed in Peter, and he saved him. The salvation that Jesus brings isn't undone when our faith is mixed with doubt. Peter's faith was mixed with doubt. Jesus' hand is extended to us without hesitation when our doubt would threaten to sink us. 
When faith is disrupted in the midst of the winds of life's difficulties, Jesus will hold us fast. And that brings us to the last point here this morning. And it's Jesus in the heart of faith. In verse 33, we're told that the disciples respond properly to what Jesus does here in this passage. They respond properly who Jesus is shown to be in this passage. Jesus is shown to be the Son of God, and the end of the passage, we're told that they worship him as such. They worship Jesus, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. The path to this sort of declaration isn't a straight line for the disciples. Doubting Jesus' word, doubting Jesus' power, but Jesus continues on and pursues them even in the midst of this, gently and decidedly walking the disciples through that doubt. Brothers and sisters, Jesus roots out our doubt. This is his strategy. He roots out our doubt. He carves out our doubt by showing us more of who he is. I sometimes hear Christians excuse their doubt. They say, well, everybody doubts, as if it's just a natural part of what happens. And in one sense, it is. And we see it very clearly that Peter here in this passage genuinely doubts and it doesn't cause Jesus to withdraw his hand. But Jesus speaks to the doubt. He says, why did you doubt? If it didn't matter that Peter doubted, then why would he bother to say this? Why would he bother to say this? We should long to grow in our faith. We should long to see the doubt that comes up and rises in our hearts, like it did in Peter's here, diminish. We should long to trust Jesus more fully with every area of our lives. That's what's being communicated. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Jesus doesn't allow for Peter to excuse his doubt. He doesn't allow for the disciples to excuse their doubt. He doesn't allow for us to excuse our doubt. He intends to grow us in our faith. He intends to increase our faith. And what we should take away from this is that Jesus can always be taken at his word. And Jesus moves his disciples from fear that they feel when they see someone walking to them on the water, and the doubt when he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, he intends to move them from that to faith. But he doesn't do that by shaming or belittling them, but by patiently and graciously revealing to them more of who he is. This is how Jesus builds faith in his people. 
It's how Jesus builds faith in you and I. He says, I am going to give you my word, and in my word, through my word, you can know me. He doesn't say, why didn't you get it right this time? He says, here is more of myself. You can trust me. In this passage, we can trust Jesus because he is Lord of creation. We can trust Jesus because he is greater than the greatest man who ever ever walked the earth. We can trust Jesus because he knows our hearts, because he created us. He created you and he created me. And for these reasons, as Jesus reveals himself as those things, we are called to trust him. And he builds our faith in this way. Four brief concluding points then this morning. Four things for us to consider as you go from this place as we enter into the Advent season. The first is this. From this passage, we are to view Jesus as supreme. And to say that Jesus is supreme is to say that he is superior over all other things. Everything else takes a back seat to Jesus. He is at the top of all things. And for the Israelites, again, it was a big statement to say that Jesus is better than Moses. But that's exactly what the gospel writer Matthew intends to do here. He intends for the people, the readers of his gospel, to think to themselves, there is no one greater than Jesus. There is no one better than Jesus Christ. And during Christmas time, it's important to reflect on the humility of Jesus, and sometimes we overemphasize this. And we probably can't overemphasize it, but we emphasize it to a point that we miss out on another angle of Christmas. Coming into the world as an infant, this is the humility of Jesus. A helpless baby born in unassuming conditions, that teaches us very much about the character of Jesus. But we also must, in addition to that, recognize that Jesus is superior to all else. Jesus is superior to all else. And Advent is for celebrating Christ's supremacy because he put the final enemy to death. Yes, in humility, in a manger, born in the most unassuming of conditions. But he would live a life that would culminate in putting death to death. The final enemy, death. What is there in all of creation that could come up against Jesus? And the answer is nothing. And so Christmas is for celebrating that Jesus will come again and nothing in all of creation can come up against him. That nothing can oppose him. His will, all that he is, is supreme. Nothing will stop him or even slow him down. He will accomplish all his purposes as he laid them out before the foundation of the world. This is not someone who is meek and mild exclusively. It is someone who is decided and is to be worshipped. Christmas then becomes a time where we're invited to reconsider the supremacy of Christ in our lives. Now there are so many good things about this season. There there is time with family that you don't often get. There, uh, There are gifts given. There is travel that we get to embark upon to see those loved ones. 
There are wonderful opportunities for entertainment. There are wonderful opportunities for experiences. There are wonderful opportunities to be intentional together, to point one another to Jesus. But there are things in our lives and the things that go year-round that can threaten to take the position of supremacy over Jesus. Some of those things are on that list. Some of them are not. Family is one of them. Money, work, sports, travel, entertainment, experiences, all of those things, some of which I named, are good gifts from God. And maybe it is the trappings, the simple trappings that come with the Christmas season. But we are to reevaluate looking at this passage and to think to ourselves, have I put any one of those things supremacy or in a position of superiority over Jesus Christ? Christmas gives us an opportunity to reorient our hearts in these things. Seeing the family and the money and the work and the and the and the, the the travel and the entertainment and the experiences that come around Christmas and the trappings and the decorating and all of those hustle and bustle things, to put those in in secondary position, see them as good gifts as of Jesus Himself, and to recognize that in some instances our hearts need to be reoriented. So that's the first: view Jesus as supreme. The second is this, and I said we'd come back to it is to, in this season, prioritize prayer. Prioritize prayer. Now, I should say that for every season, but the application is for now. Prioritize prayer. Your calendar, you you open it up, you pull it up on your phone, you open up the, the paper calendar. It's more full than it is most other times of the year. This is the case. When it comes to the holidays, because our culture has turned Christmas into sort of a rat race. There are children's programs to attend. There are concerts to go to. There's lots of shopping to do. There's lots of cookies to make. You've got to write a Christmas letter. You've got to send out a Christmas card. Oh, wait, we don't have a good picture as a family. We've got to take a picture. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And you begin to feel quite overwhelmed, quite drained. But the reality is this time of year isn't meant to be draining. It's meant to be a joyful recognition of what God has done in sending Jesus Christ into the world. And so some of this is the reorientation of the heart. But even in the midst of all of those things that are happening, life still happens. You've got to submit a bunch of extra stuff because it's the end of the year. And because Christmas happens and then, and then the, the beginning of the year and then you're into quarter one and you have to have all your ducks in a row before things end at, the, at holiday time. And you're feeling pressure because maybe you have that week off at the end, but everything still needs to happen per normal. And that doesn't even mean the dishes are still in the sink and the laundry's still in the laundry room. And everything has to happen. And again, the busyness of the season isn't always bad, although it's likely that some of us need to take an eraser to some of that calendar. But you can be busy with good things and you can be busy and not say, when someone says, how are you doing, I'm busy in a grumpy tone. You can be joyful and content even in the midst of busyness. The question is, the question from this point of takeaway is, how will you be refreshed in a busy season? Follow Jesus' example here and find a place to pray. 
you probably need to put it in the calendar as well. That may seem a little rote, but the reality is you will forget very quickly. Find a place to pray. Fellowship with your heavenly Father in prayer. Make your requests known to Him. Ask for Him to give you a heart of joy, a heart of gratitude, a heart of contentment in all things. And let Him know about the difficult things. Let Him know about the challenges that come with the season. None of these things are absent of their challenges. Let Him know about what's hard. And if you're thinking to yourself, there's no way I could take 20 minutes to pray every morning, then that's the surefire way to know that your calendar is too full. Because being refreshed in prayer is the way to be refreshed. We see Jesus here in the gospel, even in the midst of a wearying stretch of his earthly ministry, he prioritizes prayer. The third takeaway is this. Ask God to expose your doubt. Ask God to expose your doubt. Now, that's a difficult prayer to pray, but one that we must pray. Jesus wasn't caught off guard by the disciples' response to his words. He knew that, he knew that doubt is bound up in all of us. But Jesus exposes the doubt in Peter, and he exposes the doubt in his disciples. And if we are to ask God to expose our doubt, he will show you pretty quickly where you're not trusting him. Where you're not trusting his word. And when we desire to have our faith strengthened, part of the process is rooting out doubt. It's just natural. And when God shines a light on our doubt, we'll see that he is graciously and patiently leading us toward a stronger faith. His hand, like his hand in this passage, has been extended and taken hold of you. And the winds have been calmed around you. And it's not because you got rid of your doubt, but because he is gracious and patient. And when we look at Peter's part in this passage, we know the right response would be. It's always easy to look from this side of things and to say, well, he should have just trusted Jesus. He should have said, when Jesus said, take heart as I, they'd be like, there he is. That's him. He did it. He walked out here. But Peter's doubt and fear are mixed with his faith. And if we're honest, our faith is often mixed with doubt and fear too. But again, Jesus' hand is still extended and his hand exposes his pa- Peter's doubt and is it extended to build greater faith in him. So you may be here this morning, you may be wondering why your life has taken the shape that it has taken recently. Questions swirl around you like, why does my job continue to be such a burden? Or, why is my family experiencing so many challenges? Or, why am I dealing with so much physical illness? Or, why am I so anxious all of the time about even basic tasks in life? Jesus intends to strengthen your faith in the midst of any and all difficulty, and he stands in any difficulty, any storm, 
and he extends himself to you saying, take heart, it is I. And he intends to take you from where Peter is, Lord, if it is you, to it is you. Final takeaway. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus accepts the worship of the disciples at the end of the passage. They worship him and he receives the worship. This was the right response for them. It took a minute, but they believed that he is to be worshipped. They observed his command of creation. They observed him save, deliver Peter. And worship is the only right response when you see someone subject creation to himself and save someone by pulling him out of the water. Of course, Jesus' lordship over creation and the salvation that Jesus brings are key elements of our own worship. But consider also that our worship is to be a response to his gracious, kind, and patient nature. Because Jesus has given, been given all authority in heaven and on earth, but consider that he doesn't simply snuff out those who doubt. He doesn't let us sink when our faith does, in fact, fall short. He bears with us in our weakness. He understands our weakness. Jesus came in the flesh at Christmas, and Jesus understands, therefore, our limitations. Jesus is to be worshipped because he, patiently, he is patient with us. He sympathizes with our weakness, and he graciously takes hold of us to bring us home despite our faithlessness. So together, this Christmas season, let's worship him as he strengthens our faith to hear and to believe his words. Take heart, it is I. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Would you, through your word, continue to reveal to us in these four weeks more of yourself? Would you continue to show us who you are so that our faith might be strengthened? God, we thank you for not discarding us because of our doubt, but continually extending your hand to us. When our faith is mixed with fear and doubt, we thank you that you continually, graciously, and patiently Reveal yourself to us. God, would we recognize today that we stand justified as those who are joined to Christ by faith, that we stand as those who do not have to fear that we will be discarded, but who fully recognize that you have secured us for eternity. Thank you for Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. Help us to anticipate his second coming in the future. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.